The best book I have ever read on lean from a CFO's perspective is Real Numbers by Gene Cunningham, who is one of the authors of that book. And I am so thankful we were able to lure her out of retirement for this discussion. Now, that book was written about a decade ago, but listening to Jean, who is so kind and generous, well, her lean message is still relevant today. It's impactful and, well, it's real. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our conversation with Jean is right around the corner. On a recent blog post, I listed Real Numbers as one of the best accounting books ever written. But this book was not written just for finance and accounting professionals. Here's what Jean had to say about her audience for that book. Yeah, I would say I would say we really didn't have when Ori and I thought about writing this book, we really did not have the finance and accounting um, organization particularly in mind because the people that were contacting us to understand what we had done at our companies were not the finance and accounting people. They were the operational people, the owners, the people that were trying to lead change in their business. And they were running into problems of engaging finance and accounting and saying, well, where do I see the financial outcome of this? I mean, we're not doing lean just because it's the right thing to do or it's a good religion. I mean, it's to improve business outcomes. And so one of the measures of business outcome, one of the measures of business outcome is financial, of course. And so people were saying, help me understand. I don't understand. What did you guys do that helped you gain momentum on making it clear the financial benefit of some of the things that lean allowed your company to accomplish? And then the other thing I want to point out even though a lot of your career has been based in manufacturing, this book is not just for those in the manufacturing arena, uh, professional services firms, e-commerce, healthcare, especially. Agree, Jean? Well, I think that that's really true. The concepts, if you're the kind of person that can understand concepts and translate them in your mind without being given a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, do this. I mean, if you're the kind of person that can learn from reading through concepts, then I don't think that there's any boundaries with this, with reading real numbers and getting concepts. However, if you are the kind of person that wants to hear, give me a specifically a hospital example or what, you're not going to find that in real numbers because Ori and I were both CFOs in manufacturing companies, but the concepts are the same. By the way, the concepts are the same in you know, really almost every part of every kind of industry, and well as every kind of function. So it just depends on how your brain works. I mean, I've had, I've gone it from as far from people like yourselves who say, you know, this could apply anywhere, this is everything, to other people who say, well, in your book, you said uh, reduce paperwork. Well, in accounting, we can't really completely reduce paperwork. So none of it makes any sense. I mean, there's this huge, you know, wide, way that people learn and way people absorb new ideas. So you have to kind of look at yourself too. Like, are you able to absorb ideas without being given a one, two, three list? I read The Goal and Womax, The Machine That Changed the World in the early 1990s. That book changed my worldview of accounting and finance really forever. When was your aha moment of lean. And by the way, I want to clarify, I wouldn't say Goldratt is a lean person, but th- there's a fit there. What was your aha moment? Did, did, did you find lean or did lean find you? 
So um, we, uh, I, I mean, I, it was Toyota production system when I first was exposed. It wasn't lean. It was something called Toyota production system. And um, we um, apply, we decided as a company, uh, as a manufacturing company, that we needed some to figure out some different ways to do things. We hired someone who was familiar with Toyota production system. And he said, I'll only join the company if you'll do this and you'll work with a consulting firm and, and, and we'll figure out how to apply this to this company. We didn't really know what else to do, so we said yes. And so we we um, we brought we hired this person who did have experience for at another manufacturing company, an automotive not an automotive manufacturer, but a parts manufacturing company. Another Danaher graduate, um, and we uh, we we hired TBM Consulting Group, and they came in and taught us a little bit, but taught us very, very little. Basically, we said, let's have Kaizen. Let's have an event where we actually just change. We learn about some concepts and immediately apply them by changing the work. And I was, we had five Kaizen events in our first uh, activity we did with them. And I was on one of the teams. Uh, I was at the shop floor. Uh, our team was made up of people that worked at the shop. We had engineers, we had me, the CFO, and we had, a, you know, people from all over the company were part of these different teams. And in one week, we went from a traditional batch and queue approach with no folk, product focus um, to at the end of the week, we had a cell that was making conveyors one piece at a, one piece at a time. And that was it. I mean, that's all it took for me because... It was so clearly better. And what made it better wasn't just that we changed the work, but we did it by learning an idea and applying it and seeing what would happen. And of course it wasn't perfect. We had to do it over and over again, but, and it was with the people from all different parts of the company working together without all the same knowledge that we could all learn together. We could bring our knowledge together. And that was the aha moment for me, quite honestly, that was like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is, this is clearly a much better way to run a company and to make more money. Honestly. I mean, this, you didn't have to, you didn't have to do any accounting to know that we were going to be more successful that way than the way we were doing it. And so for me, I was, I was sold right then. Um, and it was these concepts. And obviously, over time, more than just a week, <laughs> learned more and more and more and more. And um, the other aha moment for me was as a finance person to, to get, you know, to really question standard cost accounting was after that event, I saw a workshop that was down at um, uh, Southern Methodist University, LCMU, that call, called uh, ABC the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I went to this workshop and I realized so quickly that ABC wasn't the answer. Cost accounting wasn't the answer. It had to be something different. And that, that the rules of accounting, generally accepted accounting principles, allowed for a wide variety of approaches you didn't have to do the traditional standard cost accounting to still comply with GAAP. And I, cause I didn't want to do something that didn't comply with GAAP. I mean, I didn't want to be way over in La La Land. I wanted something that could work for a company that was understandable. And, you know, that was, that was really what we had to do. The, I would say there's a third aha moment. <laughs> uh, and the third aha moment was really when, if you're going to be a company based on respect, 
respect for people, which, you know, a first Kaizen event shows you, you must believe in respect for people because you give people the time and responsibility to improve the business. You can't provide information that no one understands. That's not respectful, right? If I, if I give my report to you in a language you can't understand, that means I don't even care enough to understand about you and how you're going to absorb this information. So to me, that was the other one. We have to understand the user of the information before the information will be of any value whatsoever. There's a quote Lean principles are intellectually easy to agree with, but difficult to actually implement and sustain. Why is that? Yeah, I, I think I think the the biggest reason is because so many of them go against our learning, what we've learned. You know, we it's so hard to believe that what you've learned to be true could be wrong. Like, for instance that the busier people are, the more productive they are. We've all learned that. Yes. Keep people busy. Keep people busy. Manage the time. Keep track of the time and all this sort of stuff. But if they're not doing work that actually is of value to the customer, it isn't of any value whatsoever. And just a quick anecdote, I was in a, I was in a factory one time and um, there was a station that just, you know, that didn't need to be running. And I remember telling the owner, I said, you need to have them stop doing that because it's not going anywhere. He goes, but I, I'll lose money if they're not doing that. And I, you know, it's like, how, how will you lose money? Because you're going to pay that person. They're here. You're going to pay them or not. Do you, you know, it's not going to cost you any more for them to be standing there. And he just, it was so difficult for him to understand that idea because he had a mental block that said, no, you've got to be busy is good. And um, so I think, I think, I think that's why some of the concepts are hard for people to understand, you know, is because, you know, they go against, but the other thing that maybe the bigger thing, if you get beyond that intellectual idea, is that a lot of people that are trying to implement lean are don't really go where the work is. And so they try to intellectualize the application of lean versus just go and try something Go and try it and see what happens. Observe it and, and see what goes on. Um, my gimba these days is my home. And I we bought a new home. And so we've been setting it up. And, and you know, it's been really interesting because in my mind, as I've sat, we've set up this home, we've tried to do a lot of things to make it easier. We're sitting right now, I'm sitting in my studio. I love to paint. And um, one of the big things I changed in my Gimba is to make everything I use one touch away. I don't have to move anything to get it. So that, that's my Gimba now. So I feel much more comfortable talking about my Gimba life, my lean life, than I do talking about lean in a factory because I haven't been in a factory in a while now. And so I think, I think it's those, I, it comes back to these principles. You have to use them where you are. You know, you got to be where you got to do work where you are, not some idea of what could be done. Next question. Lean is more, in fact, I know the answer, but lean is more about removing waste, tools, and tactics. It's a mindset, right? Well, yes and no. <laughs> I think that's a bit of a trap in some ways. I mean, yes, it is to truly be, have it be something ongoing. 
It's more than just that initial action to implement, eliminate waste or use a tool, right? But if you don't eliminate waste, if you don't use a tool, if you don't do things and then look at what happens, you will never really integrate fully these, uh, these concepts into your work. It's, it's through the use of the concepts right actually making change i think the other reason that it's hard to um sustain is that there's not it how lean tools get applied and what is waste in one situation versus waste in another takes some thinking and application specific to what you're trying to do so for instance if you if you um have have gone way down. You, let's say you go do a tour of someplace and they've been doing lean for years and years and years. And they're down to the movement of the hand in terms of how they do some work, right? And trying to optimize that so it's as efficient as possible. But you're coming from a place that can't even get the materials to the work area. Well, you're not going to work on the movement of the hand, work on getting the materials where, so, so I think that, that that's another reason why it's hard um, to, to do this is because people are wanting a one, two, three, four list, as opposed to say, what does this mean? How can I apply it? What happens when I do apply it? What can I learn from that? One thing that was impressive in your book, Gene, is Obviously, you talked about the stronger operating performance, better bottom line, throughput, better throughput. Customer service had to just go out the roof, uh, obviously. But in the back office, there were some positive things happening. For example, the one-day close. Did that happen overnight or did it take a little time, a few months to get from maybe 10 days to wherever you were down to that one day? Was that hard, easy? Oh, it takes con- consistency. There wasn't a, let's create a plan and we do that and it's all over. Absolutely not. It was, it was just like every other application of continuous improvement, Kaizen, uh, which is that, you know, you make a change and you see what happens and you make another change and you, but you have consistency. So my role in that was really for our team was to set the vision that it would be possible that we could have a one day close and why might we want to do that? But it was the team members within the accounting department, which every month I made sure there after we closed that we had a session, we had a meeting where we would talk about what improvements did we make? How did it, what did we do? We shared them with each other and we just consistently made changes. When we started, we didn't know how we would get there. We had no idea. It was the idea of a one day close, but lo and behold, each time, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And, and the target itself is one thing, a one-day close. But what came out of it, which was far more important, was the learning that we gained by understanding what information really was of value uh, versus information that we just had been creating. Talk about the love affair of unit costs. I am banging my head with some, even consultants, who talk about we we got to understand the unit cost. Why why is that? Well, there's <laughs> there's a couple of reasons of why people want unit cost. Is um, if you go and get a degree in accounting, you will learn 
fully loaded standard cost accounting, right. which means that you take all costs. Oh no, not really all costs. We, you know, we Most. say, well, if it's if it's not in manufacturing, we don't. Have, I mean, we already start right. to back away from this idea. I mean, if we're really going to do fully loaded unit costs, we take every single cost from the company on a per it's unit good, basis. So we already. Point. So yeah, so so we've already sort of changed that. So 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 they've been they've learned take every cost, divide it by you know how much you think you're going to make in the future, and that's going to give you some you know standards. That's going to give you something to shoot for unit cost. Okay, so we've learned that. Here's what happens next. The first next thing is the people that are supposed to put together the information and accounting don't work on a shop floor. And the people that work on the shop floor and that manage the shop floor don't know what's a, what accounting is supposed to do. So first of all, it's like talking when, you know, there's a big heavy plexiglass between you. You don't really know what the other one's doing or saying, and, and but you respect, you, you, you know, you respect them. So you don't like to tell them what to do. But you don't know. So, so all this, you know, it's like this bang, this dissonance because, because they don't really know. Now, so the next thing that happens is it's easy. It's easy to come up with a number. Good point. When I, when I was at the door company, we had, um, we made 130,000 custom doors a month. Okay. Wow. All different materials, sizes, you know, custom doors that go in buildings are custom because buildings are all different. But I would go to a board meeting with the private equity firm that owned it, and they wanted to ask, well, why did that, why is your door cost changed by three cents a door? And I really would look at her and say, are you, have you ever been in a factory before? Have you, do you realize how ridiculous that question is? (laughs) Because the costs in manufacturing, there's only a small number of them that vary with volume. And so in a short-term period to look at that. Now, I am not going to say that there are, there are costs that you shouldn't look at on a per unit basis, but here's really what's important. What is the use of the information? What's it going to be used for? What's the time frame of the information? Is this uh, for next week? Last week? Is it for a year? Is it for two years? Like you need to, and, and the type of cost, like maybe, maybe material costs of some of the materials definitely do go by unit. Um, but, but your utility bill, you know, maybe it does if you use a lot of utilities, but if you don't, it probably won't. So you have to really be willing to understand who's the customer of the information, who's going to use it, how precise does it need to be to be useful, you know? And then what's the time frame for the information? So you, it's it, the question itself is, is unit cost good or bad is an incomplete question. It really is, have you done the work to understand when and how the information will be used? And, and, and have you, uh, do you have confidence that the information that you're creating and or asking for is going to actually help you make better decisions about your business? I would just add, Gene, if there are any skeptics, read the book Profit Beyond Measure. It's by H. Thomas Johnson. And if I'm not mistaken, at least when he wrote that, Toyota did not, did not have a cost accounting function. It's really all about yield. 
So here's what we made. Here's the price. Here's the sales volume, sales, sales divided by, here's the cost of running the overall plant yield. And so again, great book. And to me, the, your, his book and yours are just so compatible uh, with that. But I had to ask that question. The other thing I would ask, oh, go ahead. I do want to say, though, I think that it would be wrong for people to walk away with the idea that Toyota does not care about costs. Oh, I agree. agree. They, uh, they care deeply. They they expect improvement constantly, yes. not only of themselves, but of their suppliers. So it and I hope that people would not walk away from reading real numbers, thinking that understanding costs is not important. They're just not doing cost accounting the way we're taught in the U.S., you talk about plain language financials and real numbers, and I'm sure every CEO who read this, they said, I love this. This is what I want. Uh, just talk a little bit about plain language, smart financials. So the idea behind plain, plain language financials was that if we use language that the recipient of the information does not understand, that we won't be successful in conveying um you know, information that can be helpful. We, we won't, it won't be received right. And we can't expect our customer to learn the language of accounting. It's not, you know, it's just, it's backward. It's upside down, right? Right. How many, how many, you know, customers have to learn their vendor language and stick with them if they don't have to, right? You, you have to be customer centric. It was, it's all basic, you know, principles of, of lean, basically customer centric. So, so plain English financial is basically says, make sure that the words that you use uh, are easy for your user to understand. So words like variance, capitalization, amortization, anywhere possible, try to use words. Now it's not, you know, sometimes it's really hard to come up with a word that's different than that. But if, if it's a word you can't really come up with how to describe it that your customer will understand, maybe you shouldn't give that information to the customer. So things like, um, you know, the, the labor and overhead absorption rate, <laughs> maybe you just shouldn't give that to it. Maybe you have to do it to have a compliant statement for gap purposes, for external purposes, but it has no value internally. So why even provide that information? Right. And what's also interesting that I found that I didn't really expect as I got to work with finance and accounting people more and more is that even their own definition for what some of these terms meant, you could, it would be hard to find more than two people that could agree on a particular word within a company, especially words that had to do with the manipulation of information. I mean, we could all agree what the rent payment was because that's plain English, rent this much. Okay, get right, that. Right. But, you know, overhead absorption, capitalization of variance from prior year. I mean, even within accounting and finance, you will, you often will not get the same definition. So that's really what plain English financials were all about is, you know, plain <laughs> English, you know, you understandable. <laughs> I, I wish Stacy Barr, we, we had her on the show a few weeks ago. She's a, a brilliant speaker globally on performance measurement. And one of the, the words she uses in both of her books is weasel words. <laughs> and so those complicated words, her term is uh, she hates weasel words, tries to stay away from them. Hey, we've mentioned the word Kaizen several times. 
just give us your definition. You're meeting a CEO, CFO for the first time. What's your definition for that term? I mean, Kaizen really just means change for good. And um, but the bells and whistles, I think, that go along with it is by involving the people that know the work, change for good by involving, you know, the actual people who do the work. And then, um, you know, then uh, the other term I like to use is a Kaizen event, which is where you stop your normal work, come together with a cross-functional team, come up with some improvements to the work and try it out. Um, so it's it's kind of simple, really. It's really just con- change for good. Last question, you know, on the book. If you do a Google search on scorecards, uh, any type of scorecards, you're gonna and then go to the image part uh, of Google, you're gonna see just a lot of eye candy. So you mentioned a scorecard in your book. Uh, it's very clean, crisp, simple. What's advice that you give today, if you or if 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 you and any former team members were having coffee with a couple of CEOs? And somehow the the topic of scorecards uh, came up. What would be your advice to them? You know, I have changed my thinking on scorecards a lot since the time we wrote Real Numbers, to be honest. Um, People took the scorecards that were in Real Numbers to be, this is what I should do, as opposed to examples of what some of the kinds of measures that were different than what Mm -hmm. you might have. Um, I really feel that, you really can't develop a scorecard unless you know what the business is trying to accomplish. Agree 100%. What are their key problems? You know, you don't want to keep measuring something that is easy or not really strategically important. Um, and they also need to be really relevant to the level, to where you are in the organization. Um I was in a factory one time and it had this huge big scoreboard on the wall and it had this one particular measure and every single plant in their conglomerate had these same measures. And so I asked them about one of them and, you know, they're, they're a lean company, right? They were doing lean, but you know, I said, what about that measure? I see you have a goal there. You're, you know, you're kind of pretty far from it. What's, oh, we'll never, we've never made that goal. We've never come even close to making that goal. We just, that's what we have to do. So, uh, you know, I, I really hesitate to recommend particular items on a store scorecard. I think what I recommend instead is really a, a, a conversation about what information would help you know what you're doing today, tomorrow, but also in the longer term and position those measures appropriately in the organization. Have you written two other books? So I want to give you a chance just to mention those. Let's start with the last one first, The Value-Added Accountant that came out in 2018, a couple of years ago. Uh, just quick synopsis and who's the audience? So so it really is a compliment to real numbers, but its audience really is finance and accounting because, you know, we're saying all these things in real numbers that we shouldn't do. And people would say, well, what should we do? Like, what, what, what should we do then? What are some of the options? And so value at accountant was really, I wrote it to really to sort of build on the experience that I had had of visiting so many companies and um, to help them to get an idea of what 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 are the kinds of things you could do that would help create value within your organization, as opposed to being overhead bean counter. But even though it has a bean on the front, 
<laughs> and the cover of the book has a little bean on it. So if you've read it as an ebook, you've never seen that. But if you got the book, it's got a little kidney bean on the front, but uh, which was a little joke. But um, but because the beans are important, actually, you know, the bean, the counting the beans, knowing where you are is important, but you want to be doing it. A, it the work you want to do really wants to add to the organization. And I chose to be a financial person because I, you know, I wasn't sure I was a kid. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And somebody told me that getting an accounting degree was the hardest business degree to get. And so I was like, well, heck, then I'll get an accounting degree because I figure if I can do that, then I'll be able to do whatever I want. Now, you know, life is interesting, but um, (laughs) now it all turns out. But in reality, it's true. It's like, you know, the numbers are important in companies, whether you're a profit or a nonprofit business, you've got to know what's going on, or you can be in deep trouble. And also people like to people like feedback around is are these experiments I'm trying? Are they helping? Are they good? Are they helping us get where we need to get? Are they increasing my security that my company will be here in the longer term? And so I think it's really is really important to understand the beans, to understand the money aspect and communicate it in a way that people can understand that will help create value in your organizations. The other book you wrote in 2010, Easier, Simpler, Faster. Again, same question, the synopsis and a who's a four. Sure. So um, it also was about the experience of lean at Lantac, which is where, from my perspective, where Real Numbers was for Ori, that was Wiremold. Um, and it was really about where does information systems technology fit in a lean company? You might, There was actually a cover of Industry Week magazine that um, had Pat Lancaster, who was the found, one of the founders of Lantac, who was, by the way, a wonderful leader and allowed so much to happen in his company, just fabulous leader. And um, he, um, you know, he talked about how it's not about the books, it's really, you know, about the work, which is so right. But so it raised the question of, of is there, is there a role for information system technology? And, and there definitely is. Again, it's just like everything, a properly applied, et cetera. And um, easier, simpler, faster was really just sharing some of the things that we did that really helped. And um, for instance, you know, like as an example, we started to order materials using Kanban cards. Well, where does technology fit in that? And so just explained in the book, kind of the transition, it's definitely stories of experiences. It's, it's, it's not a, here's how you do this, but it, it's to give you ideas and concepts that might help you figure out that within your organization. And while technology has changed in the last 10 years, probably the principles are still the same in this book, right? Absolutely. Now, I will say, you know, just like everything, technology changes, like, um, you know, so, so again, but it's this basic ideas, like, how do you learn about the appropriate use of that technology? Is it is it in support of continuous improvement? Is it a block to continuous improvement? Um, are you using experimentation? Do you do you start with small changes before you do big changes? I mean, all these same ideas because every field, you know, engineering has techno- has technology changes, manufacturing has technology changes. So we're not luddites. We're not trying to, you know, ignore technology and things that relieve human suffering and improve quality. I mean, of course we want all those things used appropriately. Last question. This is CFO Bookshelf. 
We have to ask about your favorite books. What, what are some of them? Well, I would say my favorite book is a sketchbook. I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of going, <laughs> is going to where the work happens, observing, writing it down, drawing it. You know, I would walk around with sketchbooks and draw process maps and, and, um, you know, what people had to say, examples, maybe there was a, maybe there was a part number you want to go look up. I mean, if you, if you can't draw a problem, you probably don't understand the problem yet. That's a great point. And so I would say your, a sketchbook has probably been my most enlightening uh, book uh, as I've tried to um, personally develop um, and then to learn. And now, you know, I do a lot of art. And so I carry sketchbooks all the time for that. And not, and you know, I'm, I, it emphasizes the point even more. There's stuff around you to see everywhere. Don't wait for the big buck, the big bang, right? Doesn't have to be a big bang. Look for things everywhere of what's possible. Get to know as many people as you can in your organization. Involve as many people as you can in your organization and um, and and look and see what's actually going on and what might be possible. Please tell me that you're still doing some work in your field. I love listening to you speak. You're a, you're a great writer. Are, are you still doing some speaking engagements? Please tell me you are. Well, Mark, I'll be really honest with you. I retired a year ago. Um, in March, and I said I would give myself a year to decide what my future would be. Of course, five days later, COVID hit, and so life changed a lot. However, I haven't—I uh, have um, a couple of people over in Iceland that were doing a project on lean at home because, again, I said my my Gemba is my home now. So I think I'm much more in attune with what's happening at my Gimba. And I think a lot of people that um, uh, talk about lean and what lean is and what it should be. One of the questions should be like, when did you do something recently? How have you looked? And so, because it isn't, we've got to stay fresh. We've got to stay current. And if I feel like I have something too new and fresh to say, you'll hear it from me. Um, but I'm not going to rehash to my past because I think, you know, I've done what I could to share it. I will say, however, didn't walk away from it. Um, Mike DeLuca is, um, I've been, uh, found Mike. Mike's out on the West Coast and um, he has been working with a lot of the clients I had in the past. And um, I, he's just wonderful and he has a, um, finance background, but also in uh, healthcare. And so the work goes on. It's very important to me. I didn't feel like I could retire if there wasn't a way for the work to go on. Nick Kako still doing great work. I mean, there's great work. So I hope that, that Mark, you'll find people that are new to this field and who are creating, continue to create this field and create the learnings and, um, have them on your uh, on your show as well, because we have to say fresh. We can't just we can't just talk to us, you know, retired folks. <laughs> well, I'll just I'll just end by saying this: number one, you're a pioneer. Uh, number two, all of your content has a very long shelf life. And then number three, if I were to ever be a part of creating some type of a CFO Hall of Fame with some other organizations. You'd be in the first 
uh, group of people inducted. Well, thank you so very much. And you are the first interview I have done since I retired. So you were compelling to me. And I appreciate this honor. And it's been very nice to do it. And so I guess maybe I could do some more. (laughs) You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. One of those interviews I did not want to stop. I have a feeling this is not the last we've heard from Jean Cunningham. Again, her books are Real Numbers, The Value-Added Accountant, and Easier, Simpler, Faster. In the weeks ahead, we have Greg Graves, the former CEO of one of the largest engineering firms in the world, Burns & McDonald. Uh, We'll be visiting with one of the former commissioners of the IRS, I'm also anxious to visit with one of the global thought leaders on fintech. And then this next week, we'll hear from a consulting team member who helped with Hunter Harrison's big turnaround when he was the CEO at Canadian National Railway. Oh, by the way, if you like the show, leave us a favorable rating wherever you listen to us. And I hope you tell others. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.